0: Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to the end of the chapter. I can't find it. (laughs) Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock. It was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Father, thank you again for this amazing record of creation that we have. I pray that the things that you would have us to understand and know and grasp would continue to percolate to the top of our thinking. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been starting to look at the first eleven chapters of Genesis, and I think this is our fifth week there. And you might be beginning to wonder why Genesis one to eleven. Genesis one to eleven, as we said a number of uh, weeks ago, is is simply primeval history, history of the history of mankind, a history of the world before God begins to tell us about redemption history as he begins in Genesis chapter 12. And you might imagine it this way, the importance of Genesis um, 1 to 11. The theater is dim. Everyone's attention is fixed on the screen. Those watching the screen have found it comfortable in their seats and are so wrapped up in the story that they hardly can see themselves eating their popcorn. This is why no one notices when you come in about 15 minutes late. You find a place to sit, maybe in the back corner somewhere, and you try to begin to piece the story together. 20 minutes pass, then 30 minutes, then an hour. And by the time the theater lights come back on, we have this nagging feeling that something is missing, that we don't understand the full story. You've maybe figured out a few of the high points in the story, but without the essential first 15 or 20 minutes of the show, You couldn't enjoy the movie in the same way. That's the same as true when we try and understand the Bible without understanding Genesis 1 to 11. We get the high points along the way, but we don't understand where it all began. We don't understand what is important. We don't understand what matters. In other words, to understand the first chapters of Genesis is to be given a key to understanding the rest of the story, the rest of the Bible these chapters matter. Last week, if you were here, we did a quick survey of the first six days of creation. As we did, it's very clear as you do that, that it's a very selective account of the world that God has made. It's a very uh, clear purpose that God has given us this revelation in this way to show that he has created this world with us in mind, that humankind is the crowning jewel of his creation. It is the focus of his creation that he has created this incredible, habitable environment in which you and I can live and find our place and find meaning in our life. The human race was the central object of God's creative purpose. It was amazing week when you read it The first three days were uh, given over to forming the world. Remember, as uh, day one began, the world was without form and void. And so in the first three days, God begins to give form to the world. You can read those and see the different ways that form took. And then in the last three days, God began to fill the earth. The earth that was originally void, now God begins to fill it. And you have this progression in God's amazing work is what he is doing. His final act of creation at the last part of day six was the creation of humankind. As you wrestle with these early chapters, we are gonna find two themes will dominate. The first theme is the theme of creation. It's a marvelous theme. It's really in the first two chapters of Genesis. But then, starting at verse 15 of chapter 3, we are introduced to the second theme of the Bible, which is redemption. And the rest of the Bible is the story of redemption. It's as though God has created a stage in which to display both his wonders of creation and the wonders of redemption. It's as though he's built a theater to display his glory for all of us to see and all of us to wonder and be in awe of. And it's as though he has placed mankind at the center of the stage to participate in this unfolding work of God amongst mankind. It's a theater of redemption, the world in which we live. The unfolding of creation establishes a theater in which the great redemptive saga can be played out. And man is the central character, and God's own son becomes a man at the climax of this redemptive drama. This is the purpose for which the entire universe was created so that God's grace and mercy and compassion and his holiness and his righteousness could be lavished on this creature that God has created in his own image." The amazing thing is that in the end, the theater is going to be destroyed. In the end, it says that this heavens and this earth is going to vanish. It is going to end. But humankind does not. We have eternity in us. We will live forever and ever. God will destroy this present heavens and earth, and He will create a new heavens and earth. It is so valuable. And helpful to have the world view that Genesis chapter 1 gives to us. It's so important that we see that at the very center of God's sort of creational intention is to make male and female humankind made in his likeness and his image. So that we might know him. So that we might love him. So that we might worship him. So that we might serve him and carry out his purposes on this earth that he has created. We are being told in these verses what happened as his last act of creation on the sixth day. It began by creating the beasts of the earth and everything that creeps on the earth. And then, it says, the high point, the the climax of all God made and created, then he created humankind. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Mankind created personally, and specifically by the God who always was, formed out of the dust of the ground, breathed in the very breath of life by God to become a living being. What a day that must have been. Three or four things I want us to consider as we look through this. The first is verse 26, and the deliberation of God or the purpose of God As we come to this sort of high point in creation, there's a few things that you can note on your own as you go through this, but more words are used to describe the creation of humankind than any other aspect of creation. Secondly, not only are more words used, but the kind of words used shifts. Up to this point in Genesis 1, you read again, let there be, let there be, let there be, and there was. And all of a sudden you come to uh, verse 26 and there's a change in language. There's a shift in what God is saying. It's like God gets more personally involved now and he says, let us make man in our own image and in our likeness. There's this personal focus now that God gives to the creation of humankind. The word then is really important as well. Like you've got uh, the, the first part of the day where God creates the, the beasts of the field and everything that creeps. And then in, in quick succession, not over billions of years, not over millions of years, not only over thousands of years, man didn't evolve from any lower form of creation. God created the first part of the day, the animals that inhabit the earth. And then he created specifically male and female. This hits, I think, at one of the most important questions that we wrestle with at any point in our time, and we wrestle with it again and again and again. Where did I come from? What are my roots? Can I trace my lineage back with any certainty? I think what we have here is something far better than Ancestry.com. We have here the very words of God telling each one of us, where our roots go. A number of uh, months ago, I was reading in Luke, reading the genealogy of Luke, even as I was getting ready to look at the genealogies in chapter five and chapter 10. And Luke traces the lineage of Jesus back through uh, the male side of the family. And he keeps going back and back and back and back through names that we all are familiar with over uh, thousands of years. And he finally gets to Adam. And he says, um, uh, a son of Adam, and, but he doesn't stop there. It says, and Adam was the son of God. That's an remarkable statement. That's saying something about you and I. We are daughters of God. We are sons of God. We trace our lineage back to God who made us, not back to a worm, not back to a bird, not back to some kind of amoeba. We trace our lineage back to God himself. This is astounding for you to wrestle with and think through and to discover meaning and purpose in your existence. This creation of, of mankind was the result of a purposeful deliberation by God. This divine deliberation that took place, I believe, in the Trinity. Where, how else do we understand us and are? I know there's a, a probably seven or eight, attempts at trying to explain that. I am convinced that this is the first hint of the Trinity in the Bible. It's not necessarily what the early um, uh, Israelites would have understood, because there's such a thing as progressive revelation, where God introduces something to us somewhere in our history, something in the Bible, and then over thousands of years, even in our own lives, you know, you come to think about something, and over the 30, 40, 50 years of your faith, all of a sudden it begins to explode, and you realize more and more and more the wonder of what you just knew simply at the beginning. And so we have here progressive revelation. We can look back and read into us and our, well, of course, it's the Trinity. God was there in the beginning. The Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. Hebrews chapter one and Colossians chapter one tell us that Christ was there at the beginning through whom all things were created, through whom all things exist. And so we know now looking back that it was the Father and the Son, one to essence, three persons that were involved in this divine deliberation. What a discussion that must have been in the eternal counsel of God as they were planning this whole scheme, this whole purposeful creation to at the height of that saying, we're gonna create man and woman in our image so we can display the glory of grace and mercy and compassion and redemption. Their decision is to create humankind in the image of God. That's an amazing statement in and of itself. No other creative thing is ever described as being made in the image of God. The word uh, image in Hebrew, um, its root word means to carve. It suggests something that is carved out. And so you can take the reality of something and then you can carve an image of that, which is not the reality, but it represents the reality that it's trying to uh, image. And so there's a sense in which God has shaped and carved man to reflect his image, to represent him. We shouldn't be troubled by uh, image and likeness. They are really, I think, synonymous terms. They are really saying the same thing. It's parallelism, it's reinforcement. Image, uh, likeness means to be a pattern or a shape or a form of. And so all that God created, of all that he created, it said only humankind was created in his image. That distinguishes you and I from everything else in the created order. Never lose sight of that. Be in awe and wonder at all that God has creation. If you've got microscopes, if you've got telescopes, if you've just got eyes and wonder around, be in awe of what God has created, but never, ever confuse that with the wonder and awe that you have been made in the very image and likeness of God. Psalmist was in wonder of that. He says, you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. So what do we understand by the image of God? I'm sure you've maybe read that and thought, what is that? Let me give you five R's really quickly. You can can then expand them in your own mind and work them through. But I I think part of, these are how I wrestle with the image. The first is relationship. We have been made with the capacity of relationship with God and with others. We we reflect even the the, the, Trinity, the Trinity, as they have this dialogue and this relationship and this communion with one another. We have been made to know God. We have been made to be in relationship with God. We have been made to serve the God who created us. As the Augustine wrote years ago, man is restless until he finds his rest in thee. Our spot of Comfort, our sweet spot, so to speak, is in relationship with God. The second R is rationality. We have been created with an intellectual capacity that has not been given to the rest of creation. The ability to think critically, to think logically, to think uh, uh, creatively, the capacity for language and ingenuity, uh, it's, it's phenomenal. Sort of the rational capabilities that God has given to humankind that animals do not possess. The third one would be righteousness. This is a a way of saying a moral capacity, a conscience. God has placed only in human beings a conscience. It's an awareness of, of right and wrong, of good and evil. Animals don't have it, fish don't have it, trees don't have it. It's this innate sense of morality It's an ability to distinguish between righteousness and unrighteousness. Yes, it's marred. Yes, it's it's influenced. Yes, it's not perfect. But it is something that distinguishes us from all other creation. That we have this moral capacity, this ability to understand righteousness. Third or fourth, we represent God in the world. There's a sense in which this notion of imaging God means that God has given us a representative task. We see that in the word "over." I think in verse 26 it's used three times or five times, and then in this verse or a subsequent verse it is used three more times. Let them have dominion over. There's something about our role in creation the the height of creation where God has given us dominion over he has given us rule over we are to be vice regents of God in this world that he has made we are to reflect the rule of God over the universe and over us as we rule over creation the human jurisdiction of that rule is over all living beings over the skies and the water and the Lands. It's a rule that is not unlike the rule that is depicted of the sun and the moon who rule over night and day. God has given us dominion, rule, charged us to be his representative here on earth. One wrote, In the ancient Near East, when kings and emperors overcame new territories, they would set up an image or a likeness of themselves to signify their sovereignty over the land and its peoples. We still do that today. You can look at our bills, Uh, look at uh, some consulates, go to North Korea. They have the picture of the supreme leader in almost every home. They have um, carved images of the supreme leader all over North Korea meant to remind you that you are subservient to that leader. And so we represent God here on this earth. He has placed us here to show the world, to show creation, his existence. God has made us to be his representatives in creation as a kind of visible expression of the invisible God. And we're made to reflect, the fifth one, to reflect him in the world in which we live to those around us. I was thinking this through and I, this is how I understand it. Didn't Jesus say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? What was he saying when he said that? Well, I think he was saying, you, you see my Father's kindness. You see the grace and the mercy of God. You see the righteousness of God. You see the compassionate of God. You, you don't see God, but I reflect God because I bear his image. He would also uh, speak words with such incredible power and precision that people would be in awe and they'd say, no one's ever spoken like this. That you can have that same kind of influence when you ask God for wisdom and you go to a business meeting or you go to a lab class or you're speaking with a neighbor and, and God just gives you amazing words of wisdom and it stops people in their tracks. And somehow they see the incredible wisdom of God expressed through your words. And so we reflect his nature and his character. And the world around us should feel that character and that nature. The way that we treat the animals, the way that we treat the, 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 the flora that we have around us. We should reflect God's goodness and mercy to all that he has made. And I say this carefully. I, I don't think that the image of God is primarily seen in physicality, in this, because God is spirit. But I don't think this is not unimportant to reflecting the image of God. I, I've come to conclude, watching that that our physicality reflects speech. It reflects actions. It reflects thinking. It reflects working. Something of the character of God is seen in how we use these, how we use this, where our feet take us. So our physicality is a vehicle through which the image of God is reflected and expressed in the world in which we live. This was God's determination then. Amazing. This was his purpose, to make humankind in his image and his likeness. What a unique role you and I have in this world. What a position of honor and of glory to know that we reflect the image of God. And so what does God do? Verse 27 tells us what God produced, how he acted, how he carried out the purpose of his intention. It's the first bit of poetry in all the Bible. That's why it's indented a little bit in your Bible. You might wonder, well, why it's there? Well, this is, this is the high point, the way that God expresses this and he does it with three lines. So God created man in his own image. In his own, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's this wonderful act of God's Purpose. Three times the word create. If nothing else, it's meant us to understand we don't come from something else. We don't come from somewhere else. We didn't just happen to come into existence. We don't come from something that was some lower life form. We were created by the very word of God. How should we think about ourselves then being made in the image of God? I don't know if you think about this. It's not just about you either. It's about the person beside you. It's about the person you're married with. It's about the children that run around in your house. It's about the people that you work with and the people that you go to school with and about your neighbors. What does the image of God practically mean in our world? Well, I think one of the first things is it means male and female. This is the wonder of God's work of creating humankind. Nothing else in creation is made in the image of God, and only humankind is described as being male and female in this way. No other created thing is made in the image of God. Why would God state the obvious, male and female? I think we need to hear this word so clearly in the world in which we live. They needed to hear it in The days when they first heard it, when Moses first gave it to them, is that they were going in the land of Canaan, coming out of the land of Egypt, where women women were demeaned, where women were chattel, where women were not seen as equal as men. God is saying that is absolutely a lie. God has made man and woman equally to reflect his image. This is profound, even as we think about people around us. As we think about those in we're in relationship with, being male and female is fundamental to understanding the image of God. We are the same; we reflect the image of God. Yet we are different. We have a different function. We are male and female. This is something to celebrate. I hope you celebrate your gender. I hope you, as you come to understand the word of God and understand the work of God, that you put aside the lies that you hear in the world around you. You put aside the deceptions that you might even speak to yourself and you might look at yourself and say, wow, I, Paul, am made in the image of God. I, Kathy, that's my wife, am made in the image of God. And God looked upon that and he said, wow, that is very good. I hope when you come to the Bible, I want to exhort you when you come to the Bible, to by faith believe it to be true. To by faith believe what God says about you and not what the world says about you to believe the truth that God speaks about you and not the deception and the lies that the world might speak to you. That God has made you either male or female. I realize that some even here might struggle with why has God made me a man? Or why has God made me a woman? You know, I think I'd be much happier if I wasn't a man, but if I was a woman. For I think I'd be much happier if I was a man and not a woman. The truth is you will not be. The truth is that God has made you just how he wants you to be. And you will find your meaning and your fulfillment and your purpose in first believing and then coming to embrace the gender that God has made you. He has made you male or female, and you will forever into eternity be male or female. Will you trust God even with your gender? The fact that we are made in the image of God also places significant value and says something significant about the preciousness of human life. Our culture is attacking human life. It's attacking the image of God. We are losing sight of the reality that God has created men and women different, separate, apart from the rest of creation. 200 years of evolutionary science, thousands of years of lies and deception has done their best to batter down, demolish, do away with the truth that, first of all, Humans are made in the image of God and they are made male and female. The result is that once you dehumanize men and women, then you can do anything you want to them because they are no different from a cat or a rat or a bird or a tree. The atrocities that have been poured out on mankind in the last 200 years or more Many of them have been rooted in those who no longer see the preciousness and the uniqueness of human life. It's just evolved life. Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, some of you would remember him, tried to encourage his supporters to commit atrocities against the opposition by calling them rats. It's much easier to kill a rat than it is to kill somebody who is made in the image of God. The truth is, is that you, if you believe in the image of God, then human beings have unique status. If humans don't have unique status, then why treat them any differently from animals? If you abolish God, you abolish man. And the result of abolishing God in our culture has been the abolition of man. What is behind abortion? Abortion. What is the philosophy behind infanticide? What is the philosophy behind the exploding acceptance of made in Canada? It's a loss that every human being has been made in the likeness and the image of God. Genesis 9, 6, spoken long ago, says, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. See, to take the life of a man or a woman is to attack the very image of God. It's to destroy one who has been made to reflect and represent God. Loved ones, the fact that we are made in the image of God should have a profound impact on the way we treat one another. Not just how we think about ourselves, but how we think about one another. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, anyone who is angry with another is in danger of hell fire. And he equates anger with murder. And so when you are angry with your husband or your wife, when you're angry with your neighbor, when you're angry with a politician, when you're angry and you're exploding inside with with just hateful vile towards somebody, what you are doing is you're attacking the image of God in that person. This is why James, in James chapter 3, verse 9, talks about the tongue and how with the tongue we can can bless God and with the next breath curse someone made in the image of God. How can that be? He says, how can you speak so, so wrongly about somebody made in the image of God? How dare you? There's a dignity and a preciousness that God accords to every single one of us, every single one of you, an equal dignity, an equal preciousness. Not just designated for one or two or 5% of humankind, but for every single human being. There's a dignity and a preciousness given by God. There's a value that God also gives uh, to us. It's a wonderful value. And it's part of how we interact, I think, in the world in which we live. As I said, only human beings of all creation are told to be made in the image of God. That doesn't mean the rest of creation doesn't matter. But we do need to distinguish humankind from the rest of creation, Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your Father cares for them. That's wonderful. We ought to do that. Ours, it's not ours to exploit. It's not ours to destroy. It's not ours to, to, to manhandle or womanhandle. It's ours to care for. It's ours to look after. But then Jesus says to them, though, but are you not more valuable than them? He says this number of times. Which of you has a sheep? falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of course you will. You'll take care of God's creation. But then he says, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So is it not lawful to heal him on the Sabbath? Loved ones, in elevating humankind, you don't have to de-elevate God's creation, but you do need to maintain a distinction between the two. Finally, or thirdly, commendation, the commendation of God, what God pronounced from verse 26 on. It begins with this blessing and then from from that flow three blessings. Blessing is a wonderful thing. It says God blessed them. Male and female, he blessed them. The Hebrew root for bless means to bend over or to uh, give gifts to, to help to provide support for it. So as though God bends down to uh, the man and woman that he has made and says, listen, I wanna give you everything you need to enjoy this world. I wanna give you, provide everything that you need that you might thrive and live well in this earth that I have put you in to represent me and to to serve me. I I want you to, I wanna give you everything possible for you to thrive. And so what does he do? He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Engulfed in all of that is marriage in the family. That's all part of what is entailed in that. The blessing of family, it is astounding. It, the blessing of family starts with a marriage. And then if God is, 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 uh, opens the womb and allows it, then children come. And from children then come this wonderful interaction and this wonderful set of relationships, this family life that we enjoy, relationships that give us joy, relationships that try us sometimes, but this incredible blessing of family. Never ever look at the blessing that God has given you and said, no, that's not good enough. I, I want somebody else. No, God has blessed you uniquely with the husband or the wife that you have. He's blessed you uniquely with the children you have if you've been able to have children. And God is saying you thrive, fill the earth, enjoy relationships, and he blessed them. The second thing he blesses is work. (laughs) Some of you no way. I work to retire at 29. Amen. Amen. It says, how's that expressed? It's in ruling creation. That's not just meaning we're all shepherds or we all have cattle or whatever. What it means is that we... Take God's creation and we manage it and we resource it well and we use it and we shape it and we form it. So you can rule creation as you're an architect. You can rule creation as you work in the home. You can rule creation as you're a plumber. You can rule creation uh, if you're a fisherman. You can rule creation in in so many different ways. But God has given us this whole world and He says, now manage your little part of it. Steward your little part of it. There is something amazing about coming home at the end of the day. And, and being satisfied with what you've done, to look back on it and say, boy, I started here and now I'm here, or to take your life's work and say, well, I started here and look at what I've accomplished. That is the blessing of God. And it's such a, uh, such a loss in our culture in these last three years that we have undermined work, that we've said to people, you don't have to work that we've devalued it and that we've diminished it and that we've made it less than what God has intended it to be. God has made you and I to work and he has blessed our work. What a gift of God. Here's a job. Finally, the blessing of provision. Notice what he says there. Not only be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Then says, God, behold. This is, like God is saying, behold, look, look at all of this, Adam and Eve. Look at all this I've made. Behold, wow. He says, I've given it all to you. All of its excess, all of its color, all of its texture, all of its taste, all of its bounty for you, To enjoy. We were just away at a leadership retreat. Uh, The elders, the deacons, and the ministry staff. We had three ladies that came and cooked for us. It wasn't just porridge. Wow, we had color. We had texture. We had taste. We had more than enough. The provision of God through these women to us was bountiful. Bountiful. As I said this morning, I'm glad I'm not whiskey. Whiskey's my dog. (laughs) I think of this almost every day I feed him. I get his little bowl, I go to this little Tupperware container, I dive a scoop in and I pull out these little brown balls of grainy stuff. I dump it in his bowl and he eats it happily. But I thank God I am so thankful I am not a dog. (laughs) The provision of God, loved ones, is a blessing of God. Never look at your full fridge or your full bank account or your wonderful house or anything that you have and say, wow, look at what I have done. Look at what I have accomplished. No, look at it through the lens of the blessing of God who stooped down and said, here, enjoy my provision on this amazing earth that I have given for you to inhabit. And then God rejoiced over them. That's fascinating. He scrutinized it all. He looked on it all with his omniscience, with his omnipresent. He saw the things that some of you see under microscopes, but even more than that. He saw some of the things that some of you see through telescopes, but he saw more than that. He saw everything that he had made sort of in an instant. And he said, wow, this is very Very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. It's a real joy to be in a relationship with God. If you are not in a relationship with God, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. God has made you to know him. He has set you where you are so that you might find him. And the way to God is through Jesus Christ, his son. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you want to find yourself back into a relationship with God, put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ. And when you do, God does something remarkable. He recreates you. And then over the rest of your life, he begins to restore in you the image that has been marred and lost through sin. And at the end of the process, in ways that we can't even imagine now, we will image and reflect God with all the honor and the glory that he originally intended you to do it. Put your trust in Christ today. Come to know the Father today. That's what you've been made to do. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that as we reflect on these things, Lord, that you would do a work in our lives to be in awe of the distinction that you have made, of the incredible privilege that you have given us, of the blessing you have bestowed on us by making us male and female, equally imaging you in this world. Help us, I ask, in Christ's name, amen.